0: Happy Mother's Day. Um, I just wanted to kind of let you know the liturgy that we read, uh, that Stephen read after the first song, is just a um, it's a recognition of the world that we live in. We live, we're between two worlds. We're in two worlds at the same time, uh, as well. Um, we're going to talk about that today. Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark kind of speaks to that. Um, simultaneously, there is brokenness, and there's beauty. And the beauty we see in, in, in motherhood is expressed as the, the character of God and nurturing and perseverance, right? But we also see brokenness in it and when we lose our moms or our moms lose children and just the brokenness that comes with that. And So we just want to recognize that and, and, and not stick our head in the sands and say, this is where we are and this is why we need Jesus. This is why the, need, the world needs to be reconciled and remade. And so we say that. Um, and mother is just one example of that. We've been in the book of Mark, and we've been talking about Jesus' authority, right? We've been hearing about that. Um, Jesus has been challenged by the religious leaders of the day. Um, if, the, if you're new, uh, what we do is we go through books of the Bible. We're in, in Mark, and we're kind of on the, the downhill side of, of Mark right now. Um, Jesus has recently come into the temple, and he has cleansed it, right? He has kicked out the money changers and the people that were presenting obstacles to the temple, obstacles to God, rather than leading them to God, right? So he's trying to cleanse all that out, and so he made a big scene. Last week, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they were asking Jesus, "By what authority are you doing these things? By? In whose name, why do you think you can do this? And so Jesus responds, and he tells this parable about the tenants and the owner. And if you remember, and they realized, man, he's telling that about us and we're going to be judged and we're not, we're not following God. And so he, they wanted to arrest him right then and there to close his mouth, to keep him from continuing to talk about them, to stop maybe losing their, their status and their reputation in the eyes of the people. And so they wanted to arrest him. They wanted to destroy him, but they feared the people. So they couldn't do that right then. There were a lot of people around and they still were following Jesus as a great prophet, great teacher. Well, now they've had a little bit of time. And this is the next kind of segment in the story in Mark, and we've moved to chapter 12, 13 through 17, and they've had time to sit and, and to connive and to come up with some scheming on how are we going to get this Jesus. And so in verse 13, where we pick up today, it says, They approached him, and the they, right, says, But having, they have sent some to trap him. That's what verse 13 says. And says, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So they would be the chief priests and the elders and the scribes from last week who were asking Jesus, where do you get this authority from? And so they sent to Jesus some Pharisees and some Herodians. that may mean absolutely nothing to you, right? Are you excited about that? Jesus is meeting with some Herodians. You're like, yes, Herodians, right? No, nothing. No one. Am I here by myself? Okay, good, good. Just making sure. Yeah, all right, so we need to do a little bit of history, okay? A little bit of history, just so this will make a little. Hang on with me. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't care for history in, in high school, but like college and later when I, I was like really started to soak it up, why, why didn't I care about this when somebody was teaching it to me, right? Um, so the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, for those two groups of people to come together is the political equivalent of conservatives and liberals at a backyard barbecue. It's just not going to naturally happen. They don't have anything in common. They they don't. They've got different viewpoints fundamentally. The Herodians were the progressives, the liberals. They they supported Rome. They 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 didn't want to upset Rome. They wanted government to move forward. They leaned toward the secularization uh, of the culture. They were collaborators with Rome. And they were part of the, the oppressors as far as the Pharisees were concerned. The Pharisees wanted out from under Roman control. They were the conservatives. They wanted a pure Jewish state. They wanted to, be, to worship God the way that they wanted to. They wanted to follow God's laws alone. They wanted to live free from the outside influences of others. And so the one thing that brought them together was their common enemy, Jesus. And so their common enemy was more powerful to them than what they stood for. They've got to get rid of Jesus. So they have together devised this very clever dilemma For Jesus. And they have a question. And no matter how he answers it, they get to win. That's what they think. So let's look at the question. Verse 13, where we started today. And they sent to him, to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Maybe I should read that with a little bit of dripping irony, right? right Teacher, we know that you are true. And so stop, stop for just a second. We see the word trap there in verse 13, right? Um, they sent to him some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. So they're not really interested in the truth. They're just using this question to trap Jesus. Now, maybe they mean what they say there, but if you look at verse 14... And Jesus, he, he says, um, and they came to trap Oh, he says, uh, but knowing their hypocrisy in verse 15. So I don't, I'm not sure that they really mean what they're, they're saying there. Teacher, we know that you are true. And you don't care about anyone's opinion, right? And you're not swayed by appearances. I mean, they're just really kind of buttering Jesus up. And it's dripping with insincere flattery, right? Which is ironic because Jesus really is true. He really doesn't care about anyone's opinion. He really isn't swayed by appearances, and he truly teaches the way of God. They're just buttering him up to stick a knife in his back so he'll answer, they think, in front of a bunch of people. And so here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So that's that's the question. To pay or not to pay? Jesus, that is the question. It's simple. So basically they're saying, Jesus, what are your politics? What party are you in? Where do you stand? They just want him to come down on one side or the other. It's a binary question. And there's a lot going on here. There's more at stake than Jesus just making one party mad at him or one group of people or another group of people mad at him. He knows that. Now, we don't from the outside reading, so I'm going to give us a little bit better picture of that. Um, here's a picture of the coin. I don't know if we can get that up there um, on the screen. But there, there was a coin. It was called a denarius, and it was about a one day's wage, uh, typically. Yeah, that's it. And so on it, there's a picture on the front of the emperor, Tiberius, and it says around it, I don't know if you can read it up there, but it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So basically, son of God. The Caesars were kind of deified at the time. And you would go pinch. You would, you would give a tribute worship to Caesar. On the back side, it said Pontifex Maximus, which is, what is Latin. And what it means is high priest. So you've got son of God on the front and high priest on the back, right? That's, that's something right there. And they would they would carry around, and that would be what they would give as a tax. And so, for a Jew to carry this Roman coin around and use it was a constant reminder of their oppressors. Remember, they're under the oppression of Rome. They, Rome has overtaken them, just like the Egyptians, just like uh, the the Greeks. I mean, it's just gonna the Babylonians, the Persians, the Romans. Now, gonna be the, you know, it's just they just go from being ruled by one people to another people. If you read the Old Testament and the intertestamental times, that's what's happened. So the, the coins are reminding them of their oppressors, not to mention they're breaking the second commandment, a graven image. Just hold them in your pocket. Make no graven image for worship. The Pharisees are fully against this, and yet they're carrying all these graven images of a man around in their pockets. So you can see why the zealots, those who were very radical in their beliefs, didn't want to pay it at all. And so when they did have to pay it, they would pay it with shekels. They wouldn't pay it with this denarius. They would pay it with Jewish money, currency of the same value. And this tax isn't just a general tax. There were lots of taxes. It was a poll tax, a head tax. What does that mean? It's simply a tax for the privilege of being a citizen of Caesar's, just for living. You get to pay a tax. Isn't that great? So they're not happy about that, right? There's a lot going on historically about this. In fact, I mean, Caesar owned all the money anyway. That's why his image is on it. It's Like, this is all my money. You can use this to buy and sell things and do what you need to do. This, this tax, now hang with me. This is the history part right here. This tax was started by Caesar when Jesus was a, a little boy, around 6 AD, something like that. And in response to just starting a tax out of nowhere for your very existence as a citizen, there was a big revolt. And it was led by a man named Judas, the Galilean, and he was a zealot. He was very radical. He thought it was God's will to rise up against the Romans, to deliver from the Romans, kind of the messianic. There were a lot of people that claimed to be the Messiah on and off, So he was one of these. This was about 25 years earlier in history when Jesus was a little boy, and he wanted to free the Jews from their oppression, and he wanted no king but God, no Caesar, only God. And he told people, refuse paying this tax. Don't don't pay the poll tax. Don't do it. That's how he started the revolution or, or, or revolt. He also got a band of men with him. See if this sounds familiar. And he cleansed the temple of all foreigners. Similar, not quite what Jesus was doing at all. But there was a cleansing. He wanted Jews to be pure in their state. And Rome responded to the revolt. And he was quickly executed. That was about 25 years earlier, like I said. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 5, verse 37, he's mentioned real quickly uh, by a guy named Gamaliel when they were talking about what do we do with this Peter and this John and what do we do with this new Christianity thing. And Gamaliel says, hey, you remember Theudas? You remember Judas the Galilean when there was a revolt? Rome just wiped it out because it wasn't of God. So if it's not of God, it's, it's going to be taken care of. If it is of God, then it might be something, and we would be standing against God, so let's not do anything to them, and they let them go from prison. Remember, that was kind of the story. That's why he shows up here. There really was a revolt. And so, well, Jesus, what are you going to say? Because it's really not about making a group mad or not. It's are you a revolutionary? Or are you going to go the way of Judas? Because that's what the trap's about. If Jesus says, pay the tax, right, he'll be discredited in the eyes of the people. He'll be seen as kind of a stooge for Rome. He'll be seen as kind of sticking his head in the sand and just blowing smoke about this new kingdom that he was talking about and being the Messiah. It won't be seen as a real kingdom. If he says, don't pay the tax, he'll be seen as a revolutionary like Judas. And and Rome will have to stand against him and execute him in the same way for inciting the people see how smart they are? They're getting better. They're getting good. So the the Pharisees were expecting a Messiah like a political leader or or a military leader. We've we've said that a million times like um, in Daniel 2 verse 44. I think if we can get that up there. It says, this is what they were expecting. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. They're waiting for this kingdom that's going to wipe out the kingdom that they see and it's going to set up this David kingdom, this Davidic kingdom, the millennial kingdom forever. That's what they're waiting for. So this political military leader to break the yoke of Roman oppression and deliver the people like Moses delivered the people from Egypt, right, in Egypt from Pharaoh, that's what they're looking for. And so they're not really asking him about taxes when they say, should we pay Caesar or should we not? They're saying, are you a revolutionary bringing the new kingdom like Judas the Galilean? Or are you compliant with Rome and just want to tell everybody to be quiet, good, tax-paying citizens that don't raise a fuss? Which one is it, Jesus? This or that? So they're trying to force him to choose a side under the guise of this nice, simple answer. To pay or not to pay? And Jesus won't choose a side. He doesn't play their game. And he doesn't feel backed into a corner, which is a lot. I want to be more like that. What does he say? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, knowing they're feeling full of it, right, he says to them, why put me to the test? Or the NIV says, why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius. This is saying it out loud. I love it. Why are you trying to trap me, everybody? in front of everybody. You know, like, Why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And he says that out loud. And so then he asks for a coin that they mentioned. And, of course, he doesn't have one. They do, which is ironic. And what's Jesus going to do? Is he going to claim to be a revolutionist or a pacifist? Is he for it or against? Is he going to man up or is he going to cower down? Claim to be a revolutionist. I don't know. Jesus doesn't do either. He looks at the coin and so that everybody can see and can hear. And here's what he says. Who's, verse 16, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. It, it's basically saying it's Caesar's money, fine, whatever. Give it back to him, I don't care. I mean, he's almost ambivalent, like he doesn't care about it. That's what scholars say because of the verb change. And he's just like, well, it's fine. It's got his image on it. Just give it to him. Whatever. If he wants his money, give it to him. My kingdom doesn't work like that. That's what he's saying. My kingdom is utterly different. Go on and give him the money. See, Jesus isn't fully accepting the current system that Rome has got. But he's not in full-out revolt against it. He's rejecting that the way We rejecting the way that the Jews are expecting the new kingdom to come, because it's an entirely different kingdom that he's suggesting—one that's not of this world—that it it actually subverts the current world system that they are in. His kingdom becomes and has become the underlying kingdom that the world's kingdom of Rome is superimposed on. We're going to talk about that. You're going to understand there's two kingdoms that are existing. And one is the foundational kingdom that that we get our identity from and act out of. And the other one's on top that we have to be a part of. He says, my kingdom doesn't work like that. Jesus' kingdom informs how we behave in the world we find ourselves in. It's on top of the kingdom that we're in. See, Jesus is a different kind of revolutionary. He's not like Judas. He didn't bring an army to slaughter the enemy. He doesn't conquer through violence or terror, but he lays down his life for his enemies. John 10, 18 says that, that he has the authority to lay down his life, and he has the authority to take it back up again. So nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down freely. Only he has the authority to do that, and he conquers sin and his enemy in a totally unexpected way. They're looking for this military leader, like the other revolutionaries. All the other revolutions in history have gone, and he's not like that. In fact, what's written on Caesar's coin, Jesus claims as well. Son of God, high priest. Rome says, it looks like this. Those titles look like this, like a Caesar, like power. And Jesus says, no. He isn't looking to build his reputation or build recognition. Jesus doesn't need to prove his power to his subjects. He doesn't long for comfort and security and success or approval that other leaders have to have. This king spends time with the marginalized and the poor the weak, the sick and the hungry. He loves them in his kingdom rather than using them to prop his kingdom up. He invites them into his kingdom for healing and strengthening and acceptance to be fed and to be part of a family. And those that are brought into the kingdom will be like him and treat others in a similar way. His kingdom is infectious because it's relational. Jesus isn't about the violent revolt that they're expecting him to do against the system of man, but he also isn't quiet, laying down low, pretending he doesn't see anything, and kind of drop out of the system. He lets them both exist, and then he drops the real issue of what's going on here. He says, fine, give it to see it, render, and that render doesn't mean just give, it means just pay it back, repay it, give it back to him. If it's his, give it to him. What has Caesar's image on it, give to him. But what has God's image on it, give to God. That's you. That's what he's saying. If it's got an image on it, give it to him. Give him what's his. What's what's on you? What image is on you? Well, you're made in God's image. Imago Dei. Are you giving to God what's God's? This is a strange. This is some strength right here. I mean, Jesus is genius, right? He just takes the question and goes, what are you going to do with that? See, give to Caesar the money, but God gets you. Caesar doesn't get that. You owe Caesar something, but you don't owe Caesar everything. That's what amazed them. That's why it says, and they marveled at him because Jesus didn't fall into either camp, yet he answered their question. Now, as far as sermons go, you could probably just call it a day right there. Because what have we, what have we learned? We've learned from this passage that, that God has given us governments and human institutions and we are to come under the authority of them. Why? Because he gave them to us and he told us to do that. Romans 13. We get that. 1 Peter 2. They're set up by him and he tells us to submit to them. We should pay taxes. Okay, we should. You know, you don't like it, you do it, it's just part of it. In fact, Romans 13 talks about taxes. We should also give our hearts to God because his image is on us. Yes, absolutely. What's the heart of this passage though? Cuz it seems like Jesus is going a little bit deeper. What does give to God what is God's mean? What does that really mean? Is it it's, it's not your stuff, although it it includes that. It's not your service, although it includes that. It's all of you. It's your allegiance. It's your loyalty, right? I mean, what Jesus is doing here is he is pushing us to reorient our loyalties, to reorient our allegiance, our motivational structure for life, our hearts. He says, Caesar can have your money, but Jesus, he gets all of you. Judas the Galilean, he was executed and and the revolt against Rome stopped. There was no new kingdom. Jesus was crucified, nailed to a cross, buried in a grave, but that didn't stop the greater revolution that he came to bring. See, he's different. In fact, that's part of the plan to break up, to break the back of death, to conquer Satan and to banish sin for all time. He killed death by dying. And then he got up out of the grave the king of a new creation, and invites us to his new kingdom. All right, God is most fully revealed to us in Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 tells us this. It says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's the exact representation, some translations say, of God. And Romans 8 tells us that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus to the image of of the Son. And so for Christians, what that tells us is that we are, Jesus is forming us into his image. And since we're made in his image, we're to give to God what is God's. That means you pledge allegiance to Jesus first and foremost, that he is the king of the kingdom. (laughs) All glory and honor and wisdom and power and strength be unto the Lamb. Once our allegiance is placed properly, all our other allegiances fall in line. So he's primary. He's uttermost, right? There are no other competing allegiances. We, and if there are, we must choose the way of Jesus. You say it another way like this. You say, maybe our vertical allegiance, singular, determines our horizontal allegiances, all right? Our vertical allegiance determines our horizontal allegiances and not the other way around. This passage teaches us how to be citizens of heaven while living in this world. That's, that's what's going on here. That's what's happening for Mark's readers because they're like Christians in, under Roman rule. And Romans just put their Messiah to death, or they're about to. They're about to learn this. Mark, Mark knows this. That, you know, Jesus has risen from the dead for the readers of Mark. And so how, how do we live in a world they killed our Messiah. How do, how do we do that? Because their rules are different, and do we just fight against it? Do we just hide in the sand? How, how do we do that, Mark? This is a good book for us to read, isn't it? To know how to do that. This passage teaches us how to be citizens of heaven while living in the world that isn't our home. This is how you are here, that our primary allegiance is to Jesus, and that we're Christians before first before we're anything else. Kind of like me, I go to Nepal, I'm a U.S. citizen, I go to Nepal, I have a visa, I'm there for a while, I follow the rules of Nepal, for the most part. I follow the customs of Nepal, for the first part, for the the most part. I, I don't drink the water, right, and I don't drink things that have been washed in the water, because my stomach can't handle it, I will get sick. And so sometimes I'm like, I'm sorry, my stomach can't handle that, I can't eat that. I don't want to be rude, but I don't want to be sick. You know? Where I'm from determines how I behave. And if it were a law, you know, maybe I would, I would eat that, I would try to honor that, but at the same time, I, I'm not going to do that. Jesus is, is primary. He is supreme. He is ultimate in our lives. And if our horizontal allegiances affect or change our vertical allegiances then we're not doing what Jesus has called us to do, to give to God, render to God what is God's. Well, Jamie, I know that. I believe all that. I know we we say that, and we want that. But the way way of Jesus has real-world implications. This is not just a theoretical kingdom. And there is no sacred and secular divide. And a lot of, I've, I've even heard this passage used to teach the, the difference, we'll give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God. So keep everything spiritual over here. And keep everything uh, that's not spiritual and physical over here. All right, that's not what, what this is teaching. In fact, if you tried to talk to Peter and Paul and you ask them how their spiritual life was going, they wouldn't understand what you're talking about because they can't separate it. How's your private prayer life? Private life? Public life? What? I am who I am. I am a being. But ever since the, the 18, 17 and 1800s, We've gotten and pushed into this idea of there's a private life and then there's a public life. And this is where we're spiritual in our private life. and our public life, we just kind of go with the flow. And Paul and and Peter and John and and Mark here say, no. And Jesus says, no. That's what this is teaching. There's not a part that's dedicated to the government and to our job. And then this part is to our family and then this part is to God. It's all one. There's no spiritual, physical uh, divide. It means that Jesus is and gets our allegiance in every area of our lives, and we don't pick and choose, whether on purpose or not, where and what, to what degree that he reigns in it. Jesus brought a real kingdom, and it changes us, and it affects us, in how we live in this temporal kingdom until his real kingdom fully comes. Areas like this. What's the most obvious one that you see in this text? Politics. Jamie, are you going to talk about politics? It's in there. (laughs) Yeah. You know I'm not highly political. I have to be because it's the world I live in to some degree. I have to be informed, but I hate that stuff. And even as a physical therapist, you're taught two things. Don't talk about religion. Don't talk about politics when you go to a house, right? That's the main two things. Why? Because they're highly polarizing. Because people have opinions, and they let let you know about it. And they want to convert you to their opinion. And they don't listen to anything. They just tell you things, right? That's kind of how that goes. But it's a clear area in this text. Because they're basically saying, Jesus, what are your politics? What party are you in? And so I would say this, and I heard this somewhere. Does your primary allegiance to Jesus influence your politics? Or does your primary allegiance to politics influence your belief in Jesus? Which is primary? Have we converted to our party or has our party converted to us? Where does our Christianity fall? You can go either way with that. Sam Alberry said this. If you think everything in your political party, everything your political party does right is right, you've forgotten universal sin. If you think everything the other party does is wrong, you've forgotten common grace. And so we should live in such a way that whatever our politics we choose and uh, we are, that, that we're evangelists of Christianity to that and not as converts to the party we're in. I don't know who said that. That was good. I remember reading that. But it affects that. It's got to affect that. We can't check our faith at the door. What about money? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's got my allegiance and money. Okay, great. You're talking about politics and money? Gracious, son. Are you going on a vacation? (laughs) Or worse? Yeah. No? We can tell where our allegiance is by looking at our check card and our credit card statements. Where does our money go? It's really helpful for us. Where has our money been going? You ever ask that question? I don't have any money. Where has that been going? Oh, oh, oh. Amazon, oh, you know. Are we generous? Are we giving as the Lord gives to us? Do we disadvantage ourselves for the community, sometimes sacrificially? Do we turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, give our cloak? Are we doing those things in a regular way so that we can say, yeah, it's because my allegiance is to Jesus, not myself, not my reputation, not recognition, not security, not safety, not comfort. Not all the images on the coin, right? What about socially? Is there a relationship where your allegiance isn't primarily to Jesus? That doesn't line up with the way of Jesus? Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a spouse right now in the way that you treat them. Maybe it's a parent, girlfriend, or a boyfriend. Does it line up with... Christ as getting your full allegiance does your social media life express allegiance to Jesus is it who you really are does your TV or internet browsing or your cash history cash does it express allegiance to Jesus students are you recognizing that you're under your parents authority not because you're born in the family That's part of it. But because in showing respect and submitting to your parents, you are conforming to the way of Jesus and his authority. Basically, honoring your parents is honoring Jesus. It works like that with teachers. It works like that with bosses. Two to the degree. What about your career? Is your primary allegiance toward your career? Or is it toward Jesus and your career is a vehicle to express your allegiance to Jesus. It's what you're doing, why you are, or what you're doing. Do you fudge the way of Jesus or your integrity a little, integrity a little bit to get the career or the, to get the letters behind your name or the office or the raise or the position in the company? What about your family? we hit hitting a bunch of them, aren't I? I'm trying to leave myself out. Does your allegiance fall to your family first over Jesus? Are those competing? They can be. If your family is child-centric, if everything is about how can we get the children what they didn't have, what I didn't have, how can I reproduce a perfect life for them so that I can be seen as the perfect parent so that everything, everything will run smoothly. That's how we can make an idol out of our families, out of being a mom and a dad. At some point, In your life as a Christian that pledges allegiance to Jesus, you may have to lose a job, you may have to lose a raise, you may have to lose a friendship, you may have to break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you may have to forfeit a certain persona on social media. Why do you say that, Jamie? Because the religious leaders who knew the rules and they knew the Torah and they knew everything about who to expect in a Messiah missed him right in front of them. They marvelled at him, but they were not changed by him. That's that's my fear. That, that as a church, we could do that, and I don't mean just just this church. I mean as the church, that we can marvel at Jesus. Wow, he's really smart. Wow, I can't believe I can't. That's amazing. And walk away like the rich young ruler, like the Pharisees unchanged I don't want that to happen and so the question is is God calling you to more wherever you are in, in in life right now is he calling you to more a deeper allegiance a deeper desire to have your heart really flipped upside down the question that follows that would be what do you need to let go of for that to happen what do you need to let go of to follow Jesus with a whole heart? I hope that some of you are, are, are wrestling through global missions. That you're not trying to, to go to school so that you can get, get, uh, do good in high school, so you can do good, get a good scholarship to college, so you can get a good job, so you can live a, get, a, get a good uh, spouse and a good family, so you can have a good life, that, so that you can be comfortable and do it all over again. And then at the end of that, go, what was that for? I'm pleading with you not to do that, Right? Students think think bigger than that. Christianity's bigger than that. Moms and dads think bigger than that. Grandparents and grand, grandmas and granddads. Think bigger. I hope that some of you are wrestling with how do I take this career that I feel called to? How do I steward and leverage that for the kingdom? Is it on this continent? Is it somewhere else? Is it an unreached people group? Is it here? Right here? I would love for that to be a normal conversation with high school students. If the Pharisees were to hand you a coin, what would the image be on it in your life? That you're trying to decide, do I give myself to this or not? What's competing for your allegiance? See, all this questioning is going somewhere. Not not from me, but that Jesus is getting questioned. Where's your authority come from last week? This week, it's like, who do you pay? Next week, it's going to be about the resurrection. And then the next question is going to be simply, what's most important? It's all, all leading in one direction. And it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do we? And the answer to that is going to be no, but I want to. <laughs> right? I, mean, I think that's the right answer. And and any continuum is, no, I don't, but I want to. And we're being conformed and conformed and conformed into Him. And every trial that you walk through is just chiseling out the perfect masterpiece that God is making of a worshiper. So that's the question today. It's not beat yourself up because you're not fully, you're not going to have a pure allegiance. That's the beauty of Christianity. But you confess when you don't. When you see it, I say, I don't. God didn't lay down his life because you were finally going to get it right. He died on a cross for you because you never could. You couldn't earn it. You couldn't get it. You can't do that. It's not in you. And so he did it for you. And your job is to simply say thank you. Thank you, praise you, worship you. All glory and honor and praise be to your name change me into your image i want to be more like you i want to i want to run as hard as i can after you i want to pursue you in my heart i want to i want to seek like you like a deer pants after water in the desert i want to come after you that hard i want to see you i want you to waken up my making my heart it doesn't see you like that i want what i want for me i want to make my name great i want recognition i want to be recognized i want people to see that i'm a diamond in the rough that i am really fantastic that's what our flesh cries out and we say no when you see him, when you marvel, truly marvel at him, who he is, his person, his character, as he reveals himself to us, our response simply is, I want to love you with everything I got. And that's the change. That is Christianity. That's when you know you've got him, when you've got a new life that longs for that, that loves the things that he loves, that hates the things that he hates, that wants to run after him, that when you find yourself in sin, you don't stand around and just beat yourself up because you couldn't make it, or I'm disappointed in myself. I'm like, when you're disappointed in yourself, what that means is you thought you could do it. <laughs> right? I learned that one early on. Why am I so disappointed in myself? Just because I thought I could do better. We'd simply turn and say, help. And he gladly says, I love that. I love that dependence. I'm your bread of life. I am your rivers of living water. I am where you come to drink, and you just keep coming. And come unto me, all you are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest in every area of life. Let's pray together. We have three prayer directors today as the worship team comes. Number one, thank God that he alone is all worthy of all blessing and honor and glory, as well as our full allegiance. Number two, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal areas where Jesus doesn't have your allegiance so that you can submit fully to him by his grace. And then finally, let's pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this body to stir up a hunger for the word and prayer together. Let's pray for those things. Let's do one or two minutes on that, and then I'll close us in prayer, and we'll go into the Lord's Supper. If you're still praying, just keep praying.